Hello and welcome to the closest thing we here at Damn Interesting Week are going to get to a holiday podcast special. We want to thank you for joining us. We will be off for the next two weeks, but for right now, we hope that you will enjoy what we have for you this week. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Courtney Hopkin. I'm Curtis Luciani. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. This is from The Lie That Helped Build Nintendo by Joe Screbbles at oh. IGN. Curtis, are you familiar? No, but just the, the very accusation in that headline <laughs> made me gasp in shock and terror. <laughs> well, it's a little clickbaity, so it sounds like it <gasps> did its job there, but it's a really nice long-form piece that goes into kind of the history of how Nintendo was brought over to Sweden in particular. So in 1981, a young Swede called Ova Bergsten, he was in Singapore to kind of just pass the time before his flight home. He had been in Asia uh, looking for products they could import for the next Christmas because he basically just ran an electronics shop in Sweden. They, like a Swedish radio shack, not like a gaming store. Gotcha. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's 1981, and, and the Radio Shack model was a was a healthy thing at yeah, that point. Yeah, for sure. Um, so he went by this camera shop. He saw this little two-button LCD game called the Fire RC-04. And do you guys remember these little, like, black and white LCD handhelds that just had, like, a fixed number of buttons and there was only one game you could play? Yeah. you. It was just, like, uh, a few, like, kind of static pictures that kind of moved around almost. Right, like they yeah. would kind of light up to give the illusion of movement, but they were basically burned and fixed into the screen. You had one, Courtney? I had not that particular thing, but things that were similar. Right. One game. Exactly. But I mean, at the time, it just captured your attention. And it, yeah. so it did for Ova Bergsten. So he just kind of picked it up on a lark, started playing it on his flight home, which was a long flight home. And he could not stop. And the guy who was sitting next to him, they were like taking turns and it was just, it consumed them. And basically, once he got home, he was like, I got to have this. This thing is intense. And he basically sent them a message that said, attention export manager, we have had the pleasure to see and test your game RC-04. As we have not seen your products in Sweden, we are very interested in being your agent here. So basically the lie is that he presented himself as some sort of distribution company when mm. instead he was just sort of a local Swedish radio shack. Just a guy, yeah. yeah. Oh. Just a guy. So that's why it is kind of a little clickbaity because more than anything, this is that, you know, hetero white overconfidence that tends to work really well yeah. in entrepreneurial situations. It reminds me of that. Isn't that the, like the Microsoft story that they, it was like a meeting with IBM and IBM was like, do you have an operating system? And they were like, sure, we have an operating system. And then they went and bought an operating system from like some guy. <laughs> so yeah, just walking into a meeting and, and bluffing your way into like a tremendous fortune as a, mm -hmm. as a... But it didn't start off as a fortune either because I mean, this guy doesn't have a lot of experience doing this. And so first he asked for all the distribution rights for Sweden. Then he asked for all of Scandinavia and then all of Europe. And when this was kind of icily received, he's like, okay, I'm going to kind of scale this back. And then just started talking about Sweden as if he were some kind of tour guide. You know, here's the culture. Here's the people. This is what we're like. And it kind of took off from there. So when he went home, you know, he got the rights to distribute. The minimum purchase order was 10,000 units. He ended up upping the order to 30,000 pieces, which sold out quickly during the Christmas of 1981. Mm -hmm. And then in the first three months of 1982, they sold 180,000 units per month. 
Wow. So, you know, we did okay. Did okay. He, yeah. It was a, a big, bold lie that paid off dividends. And uh, the article goes into more detail about kind of like how the success took off. But confidence, fake it till you make it. That's right. Yeah. Bluff your way in. That's right. Good yeah. stuff. Great. All right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Everybody loves theme parks. Yes. Uh, I went to Universal Studios recently and I was shocked at how expensive it was and how intricate it was. This story is from Lit Hub. Literary Hub. The the short URL version is Lit Hub, but the <laughs> proper name is Literary Hub, <laughs> which means basically they're just helping people out with their books by printing or not printing, but you know, printing uh, <laughs> excerpts from their books. And this person wrote a book about Disneyland and the first day it opened. Uh, it was a nightmare. <laughs> I, this isn't actually the first day it opened. It was like the press preview day. The soft uh, open. It was the dress rehearsal. Right. Mm-hmm. The article itself, presumably because it's from a book, and if I'd read the book, I would know, it does not mention <laughs> the year this happened. Disneyland opened in 1955. I assume that this would have been shortly before the opening. So just taking some leaps there. <laughs> Assuming it was they didn't... six years earlier and it went so badly, yeah. they took that long to fix it. You know, the way they describe it, that is possible. The hard-nosed journalistic team in the damn interesting week <laughs> yes. recording studio is they, getting, yeah. filling in all the gaps here. Filling these gaps. Uh, but it did go disastrously to the point where people's shoes are sinking into the soft asphalt because it had just been <gasps> oh, paved. Wow. Uh, people had paint stains on their clothes. Uh, the invitation was vague enough that it said, you and a party. So people literally showed up with parties of people. Uh, they had put out the tickets long enough in advance that it was easy to, um, there's a word I'm looking for, counterfeit. There we go. Uh. It was easy to counterfeit them. Also, apparently you could just come up with a ladder. and I Just climb the wall. Throw it over the barbed wire fence, charge people five bucks it. to climb over. Oh, no, not just sneak in, but, nope. like, turn it into an enterprise. People yeah. were, it's like, yeah. Altamont. You know, I mean, so. they were creating jobs. I got to say, I, I respect that. If you're going to sneak in, at least get something out of it. Yeah. If you're going to bring a ladder to a theme park, you're you're on another level. Yeah, yeah. it should be a siege. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and then they pour boiling oil down on top of you. <laughs> the way that Disney designed things, which still sort of pertains to this day, is uh, they want bathrooms to be available, but not necessarily have giant signs that say they're right mm-hmm. here. They want them to be in theme. So in Fantasyland, it said prince and princesses, and people are lining up for the bathroom thinking they're going to a ride. Because <laughs> oh, they don't know. You never know. It, could, it, it always could be a <laughs> ride bathroom there. bathroom could be. You could be going for a ride. Well, and there was a story about how somebody asked where the bathrooms were, and they said they're over there behind the flowers, and so somebody just literally went and <laughs> did some business behind oh, the flowers. Geez. You know, Goofy would have done that, right? He is a dog. Yeah. He is a dog. And he's Goofy. The paradox of (laughs) Pluto and Goofy. That's right. How is one a pet and one another person? Talking humanoid. Yes. Disney was apparently running around. uh, Somebody spotted him carrying toilet paper (laughs) to a bathroom. (laughs) one, One guy had a job. I don't know that I know this ride, so it was difficult for me to understand. But there's like an there's a Dumbo elephant ride. And apparently the elephants have... Uh, soapy sort of stuff that comes out of their uh, their <laughs> trunks. Trunks. It's bubbles. They blow bubbles, right? Yeah, it's just yes. sort of a squirty. Yeah. And so one guy's job was basically he had to milk the elephants <laughs> in between rides <laughs> to remove the oil that creates the <laughs> bubbles, gunking them up. Yeah. Yeah. 
That was yeah. That was decided in the book that it was the worst job. Oh, um, I can think of much worse jobs. That well, doesn't feel like at, at the park. Yes. Uh, there were also some other next runner-ups. Uh, there was a ride that was literally just tiny cars. So children had tiny cars, and so they were getting into tiny car crashes. Wait, so <laughs> so they're just what? driving them around. Yeah. Was it on like a track, like a? I mean, go-kart? it was. They weren't like driving around through the uh, the park, but <laughs> they weren't necessarily. They weren't. They didn't have the proper training or licensing, yes. yeah. so they were just children <laughs> driving tiny cars, knocking their own teeth out when they got into a wreck. No airbags. <laughs> yeah, and no apparently no uh, padding on the steering wheel. Wow. It's, it sounds insane. It sounds like mayhem. This book that this is from is called Disney's Land, Walt Disney. And the invention of the amusement park that changed the world by Richard Snow. Yeah. Well, so, if you're interested in hearing more things about that, about what happened, that's a, that's a little bit from that book. You should read the rest of it. Sounds, it sounds like it was a, an amusing misstep in uh, Disney's long march towards uh, the, like the, the mass uh, hegemony that they yeah the, the pr- pr- producers of human happiness and sentiment. <laughs> Everybody's got to start somewhere. That's yeah, right. yeah. They learned a lot along the way. It was a journey. <laughs> it was. A, it was a nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next link. Next link. Let's talk about MSG, folks. Yay! Uh, three magic letters that spell monosodium glutamate. A word I've heard my whole life. This is a nice article. The rise and fall and rise again of MSG from Mel Magazine, written by Andrew Fiozzi. This is a nice article for me because, you know, MSG is a word, of course, that I've heard my whole life without really having any understanding of what it is, never giving it a second thought. It's kind of like salt. You know, it's got sodium in it. Uh, There's concerns about what sodium does to you. I don't really know about all of that stuff. But MSG is also a more powerful savoring compound than salt. So you can use a little bit of MSG and get a lot farther. So you can kind of reduce your overall consumption of sodium potentially. Not that anyone would actually do that. They put MSG on them. They're like, yeah, but keep the same amount of salt too. They're not <laughs> yeah. going to lower the salt just because they can, Curtis. Yeah, I mean, pro- I probably wouldn't. I salt the- Have you guys ever had straight up MSG everything. before, by the way? My dad used to put it on steaks. He yeah. had a little jar of it and he would shake it straight on steaks. I don't think I ever ate it out of the jar. Is it? I, I have and it is- so good. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, my mother is Vietnamese, and she used to cook with it around the house, too, although I think she fell prey to some of the, you know, hysteria around, you know, the purported negative effects, and that's a more complicated unwinding of, like, assimilation mm-hmm. identity, et cetera. But I remember very distinctly in my childhood, you know, like, kind of going through the spice cabinet, and I, I couldn't read any of the Japanese lettering, but I kind of tipped a little mm-hmm. bit into my palm, mm-hmm. like, stuck my the tip of my tongue in there, and I was like flooded with this like this is the most it mm-hmm. wasn't sweet it wasn't salty it was something in between i was like what? oh it's a neuro exciter for yeah. sure fully aside from what it tastes like there it's neurochemicals that it's affecting i felt yeah. it yeah it's, it's uh interesting and i mean that kind of opens up a, a conversation that's way deeper than we can probably go into but um part of the msg the sort of sort of anti-msg hysteria was was crystallized by dr robert ho man kwok who was a recent Chinese immigrant. And in 1968, he wrote a letter to the editors of the New England Journal of Medicine saying that, you know, he didn't get headaches from his home cooking, but he got headaches every time he went to a Chinese restaurant. And his thought about it was that they are just like adding tons of MSG to the food. So in addition to being a kind of inter- 
cultural debate. There's also the intracultural debate of like, this is an authentic cooking that、mm-hmm. you're doing in these restaurants. You're just tossing a bunch of MSG into stuff. And、uh, I found it very interesting because I do still see people arguing about MSG、oh, and、yeah. like, unlike the internet, and you you do see these like kind of passionate, ex- you know, those wonderful th- passionate exchanges we see on the internet where like two people, yeah, you know, someone will say I I can't really eat MSG, and someone's like, you know, that's a racist trope, and then they're back and they're like. Oh well, thank you for you know erasing my lived body experiences, <laughs> which I can't get my doctor to listen to or pay attention. But I know there's something it affects me, and you know back and forth. Just so, hearing this impression of a Facebook argument is exhausting me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stressing me out.、Oh. Yeah, it is. It is. I and、um, so what I say is, you know, you like it, you, it be like me, put it in your tummy. <laughs> Don't ask questions. No,、want. that's not the right way to be either. But、uh, you know. <laughs> Triangulate those three points, and maybe you'll be okay. Maybe, maybe <laughs> psychically and physically. All right, next link. Next, next link. link. Well, we definitely seem to have a theme going here today. My article is also about Japan.、Uh, it's from Luke Fader of Atlas Obscura, and it's based on a tradition that you guys may or may not have heard of. Have you ever heard of this? Where in Japan, it is a very powerful tradition, apparently, to eat KFC. For Christmas, yeah. Have you heard about that? You, well, because Christmas is essentially like an imported Western, somewhat secularized from how it's right. Here. It's not attached to religion at all. Over it's、there. more of a romantic holiday. It's、mm-hmm. it's a time to, for you to spend time with more your lovers as opposed to like a super、mm. family thing. Also, part of it is they don't necessarily have the same thing that we think of when you get KFC. So they get these party barrels that they order months in advance. Like it's a huge, huge deal. These party barrels account for thirty percent of KFC Japan's overall total income for the year. It's、wow. just like this two-week period. And in the party barrel, you get the chicken and the mashed potatoes and the sides, but you also get things like shrimp gratin. You get a tiramisu dessert. Like it's a whole Christmas dinner kind of thing. And so, what this article is talking about is: a, yes, there's this tradition, and it's really weird. But b, the tradition supposedly started because of American expatriates who were in Japan looking for the closest thing they could get to turkey. That was the explanation: was oh, this was Americans brought this、mm. over. That, as it turns out, is a lie. <laughs> and that's what this article is、uh, is debunking. This is actually straight from the horse's mouth. Takeshi Okawara. Who was the very first KFC franchise owner in Japan? He brought it there, and of course, it's super fascinating why he decided to bring KFC. It's very Japanese. He was a young businessman in his twenties. He wanted to start a new business, and he was really, really impressed. He said by the fact that KFC had been started by Colonel Sanders when Colonel Sanders was in his sixties. He didn't even start KFC until his sixties, and this guy really sort of was like, "I respect that. Like this lifelong journey of never stop trying to make something amazing." And so he said, "This is what I'm going to bring to Japan. I want to start a KFC franchise." And he did, and it did terribly, <laughs> like really, really, really badly. And he it got almost very quickly to where he was homeless. He was sleeping in the restaurant on sacks of flour because he couldn't afford to pay rent anymore. And he was basically at the point where his business was going to go under. He said one of the big problems was nobody knew what he sold.、Mm. It was weird enough to have chicken or any kind of poultry at all in Japan. And then they had this very, you know, red and white. Style thing and、yeah. this old Colonel Sanders out front, <laughs> and people would walk in and be like, "Is this a barber shop? You know, what's going on?" And so he was right at the end of his rope. He was about to go bankrupt over over the Christmas holidays, and he got an order to deliver to cater food basically to a kindergarten Christmas party. And they said, "You know, hey, we're just buying this food. Come bring it to us." But、eh, you know, it'd be kind of nice if you dressed up as Santa. That would be kind of cool, right? Okay, cool. 
So he went all in because he was a dedicated, you know, businessman. He dressed up as Santa. He made up a song. It was like uh, Kentucky Christmas. And he showed up and he sang for the kids and he passed out the chicken and he stayed for like an hour entertaining them. So word got around and he got a few more of these school gigs and it started to kind of turn his business around. And the real turning point came when he got on the radio and did an interview and the interviewer asked him, so this is what they do in America. They eat KFC for Christmas in America. (laughs) And like a good businessman who lies and gets the job done, he said, absolutely. This is 100% an American tradition. And like you were saying, American Western stuff was very, very desirable and cool at that time. And they knew it was sort of true. They said, we see these movies that are important. We see uh, you have a turkey dinner on Christmas. So this guy says they eat KFC on Christmas. We're going to do that. Mm. And it absolutely took off. First of all, of course, it totally saved his business. He was the guy who came up with the party barrels and turned it into a whole Christmas celebration event. But he had opened his store in 1970. He was almost dead by the end of 1970. And then by 1973, there were 75 KFC restaurants in Japan, all running the Kurisumasu Niwa Kentucky or Kentucky for Christmas promotion. And by 1986, there were 600 KFCs, and Takeshi was CEO of KFC Japan. Yeah. So he didn't do so badly. He bluffed his way in, and it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they noted that it is it is a little unclear where the this was started by American expatriates excuse came from, but they asked the current KFC execs if they had any comment on Takeshi's story, and they said, uh, no, we don't. <laughs> Let the mystery continue to carry everyone forward. That's right. right. Nintendo and KFC, man. That's Two a, things a that go together. Wonderful cultural so exchange. Um, I do really like the idea of just like walking into a fast food restaurant you've never seen before and just being like, the the old gentleman outside. <laughs> what does he do? Oh, and like, they say, what, like, what is his relevance to this business? That's part of the part of the reason why they say they think it also took off is they have this reverence for you know the ancestors mm-hmm. and they say ah a wise old man with a white goatee runs this business. This must be <laughs> he knows one. what he's doing. He's, yeah, he's right. a man of many fine chicken <laughs> secrets. Right. Is it? Um, have he killed a guy? Didn't he, Colonel Sanders? <laughs> I always hear that like offered that. as like a. I mean, fun he was a fact. He was a colonel. I suppose I could look it up. Sounds but. like yeah, if he went to who, war, he yeah. sounds like somebody who kills people. Yeah, I thought I thought it was something like he fought a duel or something. Some, I mean, some... can you be a colonel and not duel? <laughs> it Do feels... you think he slapped someone with a, a chicken wing? Like he just a chicken glove, a chicken duel? <laughs> well, you pick weapons, so if you both have chicken, it's fair, and then you just. Drumsticks across the face. Yeah, oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and he and and it's like supposed to be kind of mostly a symbolic affair, but the the colonel's so hardcore, he snaps the chicken bone off on the yes. table and just jams it in the other guy's <laughs> he got throat. Got a pouch of the herbs and spices, and just throws it like sand into his <laughs> yeah, opponent's yeah, eyes. Yeah. yeah, blinds the opponent with like the spice great- pack. Super Smash Brothers character. Yeah, the Colonel. Think oh. of the licensing tie-ins. <laughs> they Hello. should get in there. Ronald McDonald. Okay, but between Ronald McDonald and Colonel Sanders, I'm certain Colonel Sanders would win. Like that—that's no contest. What if Ronald can call an assist and have Grimace or the Hamburglar come in to like tag team for a power move? He has a whole team of people behind him, and the Colonel is alone. Oh, he's got <laughs> hundreds of chickens, what and they are mad. A flock of chickens and like little uh, little country gentleman outfits, or maybe the seven herbs and spices are his 
uh, minions. <laughs> yeah, they kind of swirl in the air. That's and how their shape. Twitter account is set up. Oh, you heard about that? No. Where like the Twitter account of a KFC official, they only follow um, like a handful of people, and they're all dudes whose first name are Herb and all of the Spice Girls. And the first person who like figured it out and tweeted about it because they didn't publicize it. Right. They just said this is a something. Yeah. They received, I think, like a, a lavish oil painting of the colonel <laughs> with that tweeter like as a prize and maybe some like free kfc you can find that really easily online because wow. it was it was a big deal on social media it's very what weird a- in the age of social media to see all these massive brands like just kind of embrace the like aesthetics of like weirdo comedy well especially like- <laughs> because you know it's like some 22 year old girl with a un- very very poorly yeah. paid job and yeah. they're just like just sit there and yeah. do what the kids do well, i don't know i mean and- like the ideal person because it's like uh you're 22 do you get high a lot okay well like make something <laughs> that would make a high 22 year old be like oh i need kfc now that's right yeah dude. do you guys remember the uh, subservient chicken from burger king ages ago yes no. yeah. chicken <laughs> this was uh, it's a bit of a detour but mm-hmm. it was basically a website you go to subservientchicken.com and it was this camera set up in what looked like some dude's basement dudes dressed up in a full chicken suit <laughs> and you would type in commands oh like, he would do them and he would do the I thing i do remember yeah. that and that, that was, was very that, weird. that was one of the first like really big viral <laughs> moments for like something stunts, like this yeah. yeah and it turns out they were all kind of like pre-recorded and so there were certain things like mm-hmm. you know dance and then if you asked it to do something naughty he would come up to the camera and shake his finger uh, uh, uh. I, I think we should produce a really low budget but eerily effective horror movie based on the subservient chicken scenario or it's something. It's the colonel you know? who brainwashes the chicken to be subservient <laughs> and do his evil bidding. Yeah. And then the real horror movie starts when the cease and desist letter arrives. <laughs> 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 All right, next link. Next, next link. link. All right, let's clean this up. We've gotten a little dirty and off track. How about... How Cleanliness and Beauty Became Intertwined in the 18th Century by Mm -hmm. Peter Ward at the already explained Lit Hub. So basically in the late 18th century, there was a huge interest in advice literature, what we now call self-help books. Due to the spread of literacy, book publishing got cheaper, the middle class was expanding, and they were seeking guidance on the right conduct. Too much free time. (laughs) There is a lot of that leisure class situation happening, too. And, of course, there were a lot more people declaring themselves experts who wanted to capitalize on this market for advice. Um, So before the 18th century, there wasn't a lot going around in terms of like how to accentuate feminine beauty and preserve it from time's certainties. So they really saw a woman's attractiveness in relation to her conduct. So it was more of a moral thing as opposed to a physical thing. What a time that well, must have been. Well, that's nice, yeah. Before the beauty sh- industry. As long like, as you behave, you're pretty. All right. <laughs> you, you have to behave in a certain way, right, of course, right. with decorum and modesty and <laughs> virtue. But um, apparently, so what happened was in ni- uh, 1754, there was a Parisian doctor. His name was Antoine Le Camus. So it was a Camus, but not that Camus. And he wrote this, uh, Abdeke ou l'art de conserver la beauté. So it was purported to be the translation of an Arabic manuscript from the time of Mahomet II, the Ottoman sultan who conquered Constantinople in 1453. It was a tale of illicit love between a young physician to the women of the harem and Fatme, uh, someone in his seraglio. <laughs> and it was this very, you know, hyper eroticized, exoticized Orientalism that was just, you know, de rigueur. Basically, he started going into like, you know, what is life like in the harem? 
with its imagined air of perfumed sensuality and sexual license. Uh, the book was republished at least four times because it was such a hit. But the curiosity of the book didn't really come from its romantic plot or its erotic overtones, but the fact that it offered feminine beauty tips on a broad range of topics. So like just mid-chapter, it'd be like, and if you want the perfect brow. This is <laughs> it was probably framed in the context of, you know, and she luxuriated in, you know, the bath of donkey mare juice or whatever it is that they're doing. I believe they call that milk. This is also uh, why, like, just like, this is why, like, 18th century literature also just kind of, like, rules is because, like, they just hadn't totally decided yet. It's like, yeah, there's novels, there's how-to books. Like, we hadn't decided right, that these the were all distinct together. types of books, yes. you know? It's like, why not have, you know, a good rollicking erotic story that also just has lots of tips? Right. Yeah. Tips. Yeah, bring in the hygiene with your romantic novel. Why not? Mm -hmm. Fabio washes his hair, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so um, his advice on bathing in this book was set in the context of a visit to the bath to the harem. Mmm, so tantalizing. Basically, he was putting forth the idea that one would bathe to preserve a white skin and to cleanse it of dirt for pleasure and for politeness as well as health. <laughs> so bathing offers a host of natural benefits, Camus purported. Yet one should proceed with caution because inconsiderate use could be the cause of major ills. <laughs> it's too bad there's no video feed because Angie keeps doing like this... <laughs> This silent movie, like close up, as she says, all these she keeps like gently Fantastic touching gestures. her cheeks and like. I, I'm a big fan of like you know grooming and beauty rituals as a form of self care, and I struggle with it a lot because you know the industry is so insidious, and you know obviously what we're basically getting at here is that male gaze had a lot to do with female hygiene and beautification, which has persisted to this day. So I'm conflicted, but. If you could tell me how the geishas of yesteryear <laughs> performed their ablutions, like I, the, you'd be into it. You'd be like, I'm, so, "Get me there! I yeah. want to." Yeah. Or like medieval recipes for beautification that included like all kinds of things that we know to be, you know, belladonna for the drops. I've, I've like, long been fascinated yeah. with just this. Rub some mercury into your cheeks; <laughs> it revitalizes. Well, self grooming can be. It's just very soothing. I mean, you if know, you're doing it with the right attitude, you know, for sure. You know. But you know, for all but the most privileged Europeans of the time. The remote possibility of actually bathing in this manner was completely unrealistic, right? I mean, so this is where we get Where into do the... you find donkey juice? <laughs> <laughs> Bear juice. I actually referred to Just... almond milk as almond juice the other day, so I'm not one to talk. <laughs> oh, there's a big stink about what can and cannot be called milk yeah. that's happening right but now. You that's just, very you just tap a donkey, right? Yeah. You just like just put a tap on a donkey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. Juice it. Oh, I thought I thought you meant like physically, just like boop it on the nose. You just yeah, tap just the donkey. Like, hey donkey, no. hey donkey, can I have some juice, please? <laughs> juice comes out. Next link. Next link. Uh, we all love soup when we're feeling bad. Uh, some love chicken it. soup make you feel better. Liquid Delicious. meal. Liquid meal. This oh. is an article from NPR called "Soup Study: Minestrone Could Be a Secret Weapon Against Malaria." Ooh. Uh, this scientist. He is a professor of cell biology and infectious diseases at Imperial College in London. Cooked up a, it literally says that in the article, he cooked up. <laughs> so don't blame you. Cooked up a project for his son's, uh, you know what? It doesn't say, son or daughter's primary school. They had the students bring in their family recipes for soup. They, and then they went and looked under a microscope and all the kids were taking part in this. Uh, they were looking for asexual growth during the disease-causing stage of these parasites. Uh, and so one student was a little bit concerned because 
His mother was a pescatarian. Uh, she wasn't going to make him anything chicken. So she brought some vegetable minestrone, which apparently was the key. It was the least uh, inhib. It, it, it didn't promote the growth as much as the rest of them. This minestrone isn't going to save you from malaria, but... Uh, you know, he's got this little bit of information now that this vegetable minestrone, maybe there's something in it that we can look at. And this all came from a, a primary school's, you know, little project. Family recipe, man. Yeah, yeah. it actually could. It could be. Could defeat malaria. <laughs> it could be. Uh, but, you know, they've got a long way to go after this. And the article, as with my previous article, no dates. So I don't know when this happened. <laughs> uh, NPR, shame. <laughs> I expect more from you. <laughs> That's so interesting that the soup that held the most promise was the one that didn't have chicken in it. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. chicken soup is kind of that universal mm-hmm. post-cultural or pan-cultural like panacea. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, and they've confirmed that it has anti-inflammatory properties. Like they have actually figured out what is it about chicken soup that is helpful. And it's obviously not the entirety of the chicken soup. There's some compounds and things that are generated. Mm -hmm. But they've confirmed it. This really is anti-inflammatory. It really can help you get better. It's not a cure, but it it does support your immune system. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, who's to say what's in this minestrone? But it's not chicken. We know that. (laughs) It had cabbage, which we know. uh, Oh, that's good. You know, it's super good if you ever have any kimchi to boost your gut bacteria. Kimchi over a fried egg. Mwah. Yeah, oh, so yeah. Good. making me hungry. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and um, it genuinely does make you feel better. Oh yeah. Uh, next link. Next, next link. link. Okay, uh, I guess this is either a, a chilling or a thrilling look at the future, depending on your perspective. Uh, this is from pop- Popular Mechanics. Only the mechanics that draw the most attention and interest. <laughs> um, how robotic blacksmithing could change manufacturing forever by Courtney Linder. So. I do not have a great uh, deal of engineering knowledge, uh, but I am going to say that kind of, I hope a good summary of the concepts being discussed in this article are that there's many frontiers currently being pursued in um, 3D printing with metal. Um, obviously, machines are used in this process, but there's, there's, they're limited in what they can do, especially in sort of fine additive or subtractive work. One reason, for example, that like uh, the Cybertruck, the new Elon Musk, uh, the low res vehicle, yeah, the, the <laughs> yeah, the new part of the reason it looks that way is, is of course, he is interested in trying to subtract uh, as many people as he can from the process of making a car and make it as like automated, as technology driven as possible. So this article is kind of talking about you know what technologies remain to be figured out in order to get to a place where such a heavily mechanized process could produce, for example, a car that is more contoured. Yes, that that is more contoured, more in line with our expectations of what a car should look like. For me, it's always just fun to think about this stuff. There's so few things in our contemporary discourse that like kind of cut across, you know, various, you know, left, right binaries that we have created. But technology and automation is one where, you know, there's always a debate on like both sides. You know, there's reactionary reasons for being suspicious of the progress of technology. And there's revolutionary reasons for being suspicious. We can all agree that it's a scary idea. We can all agree (laughs) that it's scary, but like uh, it's somehow someone who seems really, 
I guess really smart is telling me that we should trust that the technology and the efficiencies that it creates actually do slowly like build a better world for everyone. And again, there's like, you know, capitalist and there's like socialist takes on that idea. I always think about the fact that, you know, like, you know, for example, like Luddite used to, especially in like the late 90s and early 2000s, when we were all supposed to be very excited about tech. And I certainly was very into the Internet. Luddite was a word that was like a clear, like pejorative, pejorative. It's like, yeah, you're a Luddite. You're resisting the advance of technology. And when you, you know, you look back on the Luddites and that time, it's like, well, there's no denying that what industrialization looked like for most people on the ground as they experienced it was not a very pretty picture. So so like the idea that you might be like, hey, maybe we should just smash these machines makes sense to people. So I, you know, and 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 how can you deny that it was probably pretty bad working in a 18th century factory? Um well the factories of the future, you won't have to work in them. Uh <laughs> but the question of what will happen to you uh, after there's no need for you at the robo factory still, I guess, pending. Well, let's I, just let's find out. I say just roll <laughs> the dice and we'll we'll see. Let's, what will a montage look like, though, at this point? You know, we've got a man melting down all of his possessions to create a weapon. He's stabbing him into, <laughs> into water. The steam is coming up, and now he's just going to be 3D printing them. Yeah, he's going to flick yeah. a switch, go to the mirror, and just practice yeah. his power just, moves. We're going to lose a lot of blacksmithing montages. Yeah. I really yeah. think John, this John Wick 8 is going to have. I'm with you on like, this Luddite you know. thing. I don't want to lose that beautiful part of our culture. <laughs> Shared culture, absolutely. <laughs> blacksmithing montages. Blacksmithing montages. <laughs> Every, do you don't, uh, don't act like you don't know what she's well, talking I about. Do, when yeah. you, Insert the sword into the water and it pssst and yeah. it's oh, a no. man who can't take it anymore. How else are we going to convey this? <laughs> the Mandalorian's got these beautiful welding blacksmithing things uh, in, in this season. If, yeah. You know. Well, not, not, not anymore. anymore. They're going to they're gonna outlaw it being shown yeah. on the screen. There this was, is a joke. Yeah. We are joking. <laughs> the manufacturing interests will lobby for the suppression of positive <laughs> images of human blacksmithing. In order to build their power. <laughs> Unless in a sci-fi fantasy capacity only. Yes. Well, yeah. dystopian, obviously. It's like you can show it as long as you make the people understand that this way of life leads to degradation <laughs> and absolute hardship. You know, yeah. Trust the machines. Love the machines. It's what the machines tell us. We got to believe them, right? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. This one has such a lovely title and a lovely lead. This is from David Fleming of ESPN, not necessarily a uh, outlet that we would normally find an article from, but it's called The Ugly, Gory, Bloody Secret Life of NHL Dentists. Ooh. And I'm going to be perfectly blunt. There was a lot of this article that made me very uncomfortable. I'm not going to read those sections. I'm just going to read the opening line. When the puck finally came to rest, it was almost entirely inside Craig McDonald's mouth. Oh, oh. And it just sort of goes on about what is it like to be a dentist in the National Hockey League. And it turns out, of course, all of these professional hockey teams have their own dedicated dentist who is on site. He sits a few rows back from the bench and he's got his toolkit and he is ready to go because they said, aside from the fact that, yes, you have all these horrible tooth injuries, which are made much worse by the fact that a lot of these players refuse to wear protective gear, oh. they find the lost teeth to be a badge of honor. They like it. They, you know, if a teeth goes flying across the rink, they're like, yeah, I did that. Like, they're, they're very proud of their injuries, but they want to get back on the ice. And so in the moment, these dentists' main goal 
is stop the bleeding, yank or file down any dangerous edges, and numb the pain so the player can return to the ice as quickly as possible. <laughs> uh, they say root canals, things like that. They wait for the next day. They just oh. get them back on the ice as fast as they can. Most players with severe mouth injuries still lose only four to six minutes of ice time. What? Yeah. And they have, they have dentist chairs down in the locker room. And the really crazy thing that I found absolutely amazing was these dentists are almost always unpaid. They get free tickets to the game and they get the fame and association of being that team's dentist because, of course, it is known that these guys, they have high standards. You got to be the best. I can see that. Absolutely paying off 100% or just personally paying off. That sounds like it would be a dentist dream hobby. Well, and they say it's it's also very interesting for them because, of course, 90% of the time they go in there doing cleanings yeah, and cavities or whatever. Yeah, they scraping crap off of They go teeth. to a game. They don't know what's yeah. going to happen. They got, I mean, they had descriptions of some really hideous injuries. Yeah. It's like 15 mm-hmm. teeth are out and they couldn't even identify which was his cheek and which was his jaw. Yeah. Just really, really grotesque it, stuff. It's also, you know, it seems like it's like, oh, man, I'm going to get to do some of that 19th century dentistry. <laughs> yeah, where finally. Like, yeah. yeah that broken tooth out and be like, walk it off. Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing this as some sort of Dan Brown book now. Uh, <laughs> well, like, he uncovers a mystery yeah, while he's working on the while guy's he's teeth. working, yeah. He, he's like, you know, he's like, I'm, I'm an expert in toothology. <laughs> There's a message <laughs> hidden inside one of the teeth and he discovers it. <laughs> well, and, and the other thing that they said is, of course, these teams very much appreciate their dentists. They are like, you know, treated like royalty. And they said that when a team goes to the Stanley Cup and wins a championship, the team's dentist also gets gets a championship ring. They sort of consider him to be absolutely part of the team. He's one of them. (laughs) They also noted, unfortunately, or fortunately, if you have a normal human perspective, this trend is fading out a little bit because while many of the players in the NHL still refuse to wear protective gear, the college hockey leagues require it now. They've said, no, we can tell you what to do and you are going to wear mouth guards. So a lot of these professional players are now coming mm-hmm. into the league with all their teeth still intact. Right. Whereas oh. before you were started losing them at 15 yeah. or 16 yeah. on the ice. And so now they kind of like, well, I've gotten this far. I want to keep them. And of course, vanity and tooth appearance has become much more <laughs> prevalent in our society, yes, I suppose. Yes, yes. In the Instagram age, suddenly everyone wants to keep all their teeth. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm telling you, you can trace this back to the Illuminati. This is going to be a great Dan Brown book. <laughs> I'm into it. I want to see it. And well, and the, I was going to share the one really horrific, amazing word that I learned from this article is pulpectomy. Oh, no. Uh. <laughs> Without explanation, it's disgusting. It is. It really is. And I'm, I'm just, if you want to know what it means, go read the article, but not before lunch. Whatever you're imagining is probably pretty bad. Oh, it's worse than that. Next link. Next link. Um, I'm going to keep this pretty quick. This is from The Jokes Always Saved Us, Humor in the Time of Stalin by Jonathan Waterlow mm. at Anne. Um, it goes on to kind of, you know, talk about like how in times of terrible trauma and everything's horrible, we turn to jokes and laughter to save us. And jokes have been used as propaganda and as well as reasons to, you know, really put people in prison, you know, in labor camps and all of that. But I wanted to just kind of read these two Stalinist jokes because... Um, <laughs> Because that's what the world needs is more jokes about Stalin. <laughs> you know, we, we've heard all the Trump ones. Let's go back to Stalin. A, a better time, a happier time. Okay. Stalin was out swimming, but he began to drown. A peasant who was passing by jumped in and pulled him safely to shore. Stalin asked the peasant what he would like as a reward. Realizing whom he had saved, the peasant cried out, Nothing! Just please don't tell anyone I saved you! Nah. <laughs> 
Um, they call think the, of that, Joe? <laughs> that's dark. <laughs> well, yes, they are. And what's interesting, too, is um, the word for joke, I guess, in Russian, the way that it's translated here is anecdote, A-N-E-K-D-O-T. Oh. Anecdote. Anecdote, right? right? Yeah. This joke in particular uh, led to a 10-year spell in a forced labor camp, the one you just heard. Oh, oh so someone actually told that joke and got Someone punished. actually oh. told this joke. It was a, oh. a Boris Orman who worked at a bakery. Um, So this was in mid-1937, even as the whirlwind of Stalin's purges surged across the country. He shared this with a colleague over tea in the bakery cafeteria and 10 years in a forced labor camp. All right. Who's ready for the next one? Oh, I can't lay it on me. (laughs) All right. I got a 10-year cancellation (laughs) for that joke. All right. A peasant (laughs) visits the Bolshevik leader in Kalinin in Moscow to ask why the pace of modernization is so relentless. Kalinin takes him to the window and points at a passing tram. You see... If we have a dozen trams at the moment, after five years, we'll have hundreds. The peasant returns to his collective farm and, as his comrades gather around him, clamoring to hear what he's learnt, he looks for inspiration and points to the nearby cemetery, declaring, you see those dozen graves? After five years, there will be thousands. (laughs) (laughs) And And what punishment did that joke get? This, uh, I don't think this one said which one, how much it had. But, but he got punished. This I mean, was a... yeah, they were all getting punished. So basically in 1935, the telling of political jokes was considered as dangerous as the leaking of state secrets. So dangerous and contagious, in fact, that even court documents wouldn't even quote them. Wow. Yeah, mm. it was a really big deal. So this kind of goes into, you know, why we do this and some of how specifically horrible it was back then. But and how did we get them here now? If even the court documents. Who wrote it down? That's a good question. Oral tradition, you know. These are uh, so the one I think that happened a little bit earlier that may have actually been recorded, but the Graves one was just uh, known as a common anecdote, basically. So Mm -hmm. some of these may have been telephoned or you know like evolved in translation over the years, or just something that is passed along, like a chicken soup recipe handed down through the ages. (laughs) A chicken soup recipe that gets you ten years. That's right. Forced labor. And this is why. As I say, even up to this day, people who make jokes about politicians are the bravest heroes. Amen. And, the, a- and the actual troops. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We hope that everyone has a lovely holiday break. We will be off for the next two weeks, but we will see you in January with a whole new slew of articles for the 2020 annual cycle. <laughs> <laughs> The calendar year beginning January 1st. Clearly, we're already all on vacation. We hope that you uh, will visit our Patreon. We actually have some new gifts for the people who sign up to be our patrons. There's some really exciting behind-the-scenes stuff uploaded. If you want to go see it, you can find out what we're like off microphone, which is not, unfortunately, that different. And uh, we hope that everyone has a good break. In the meantime, I'm Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Courtney Hopkin. I'm Curtis Luciani. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.